Okay, Genesis chapter 6, starting at verse 1. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, that daughters were born unto them. And the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty. And there were giants in the earth in those days and, and after that. And when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, they, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and, God, and that every imagination and thought of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented God that he had made man t on the earth, and it grieved him his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and, and creeping thing and the fowls of the earth, for it repents me that I have made, made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So we're going to look at this. Uh, we talked last week about the genealogy of Seth, and we went through the individuals that led to Noah. And we've, uh, two weeks ago, we talked about the, the genealogy of Cain. So we're going to look at this. It says in verse 1, And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth. Now, they, daughters were born unto them. Now, we know that that happened long before the, the time that we're getting ready to talk to, because otherwise Cain, and a, Cain Abel, and Seth wouldn't have uh, had uh, wives. So, because, and remember, we reemphasized this quite a bit last week. It says that each one of them had sons and daughters. And the biggest question people will always ask you as a Christian is, where did Cain get his wife? Well, he married his sister. We've talked about that a couple of times. We want to hammer that home so that if anybody ever asks you, where did Cain get his wife? He married a sister. <laughs> Seth married a sister. Maybe a cousin by that time, but <laughs> definitely somebody who is closely related to him. Otherwise, they wouldn't have gotten married. And I've heard people tell me, well, God made special creations for each one of them. No, they married sisters. <laughs> Otherwise, there would not be the line through the DNA that reveals that there's only one father and mother for everybody, ultimately. So we have those, we have those proofs. But it says, The sons of God saw, saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them for wives, as, as all of them chose. Now, I want to bring this up because there's two schools of thought on what this means. <laughs> all right? Uh, I will tell you the one that I don't believe first. <laughs> Uh, and there are many people that believe this, that angels came down to this earth and cohabitated with women and produced half-breeds. Um, and that is by far probably the one you're going to hear most by people, and they'll give you all kinds of scriptures from the New Testament and Old Testament taken out of context to show you that that is true. And, but I want to go back to the very first chapter of Genesis that says, everything produces after its kind. If you believe that angels came down, have sex with women, and produced half-breeds, you're saying that angels and men are the same kind. Angels are spiritual beings. We are fleshly beings. And I do not believe that it is possible for them. Now, the second side of that, they'll say, well, the demons possessed these people, and then they had sex, and somehow the demon transferred into the, into the child, and they'll get into this all kinds of possession stuff. And again, because when you start throwing out objections to them, they start coming up with some very bizarre... <laughs> ideas. Now, we take this statement in context of the previous chapters. The line of, of Cain was de dealt out with, and it led to more and more evil as it went on. I am going to say that I believe that that is the, the daughters of 
men that they're talking about is that evil line. And that Seth's line that we talked about last week is the, the, the uh, men of God. Now, am I going to be absolutely strong and say you have to believe that? No, you can believe whatever you want. <laughs> uh, but I just don't buy the, the other explanation. And like I say, they come up with all kinds of weird Weird things. They believe that the devils are, are the fallen angels and the demons are the, the half-breeds and they have to be locked away and all these other things. It's, they, once, they, once they start on that road, they've got a whole doctrine that follows, <laughs> follows it. Okay? And, and I'm not going to say they're wrong because I just don't believe it. <laughs> okay? So I'm going to say they're wrong as far as I'm concerned. If they're right, they're right and I'm wrong. It doesn't matter. But I'm going to tell you why I believe what I believe. <laughs> and you're free to choose what you want. Because everything produces after its own kind. I do not believe that angels produced with men. Jesus said that the angels aren't given in marriage. They neither have children or, or not. So, again, Jesus said they don't. So why would they, in, in the beginning of the book, that they did? So, but this takes us into this whole unequally yoked idea. If a Christian gets married to a non-Christian, and this happens a lot of times with teenage girls especially, or young 20s girls, they feel they can't find a good man, so they marry the first one that comes along that's not saved. And the next thing you know, they're not going to church, they're not reading their Bible, and they're not following God. Evil will almost always pull down good. And this is why we need to be careful who we pick for companions. You know, we want to hang out with non-Christians, otherwise we have nobody to witness to. Okay, But, and I've said this over and over again, a non-Christian shouldn't be your best friend. Because <laughs> if you're hanging out with a non-Christian as your best friend, you probably are going to be drawn into their world. Very rarely does the good, per good pull up the evil. And there, there are a couple of times, I'm not going to say you know, over the years, that I haven't seen it happen. But the odds of it being working are about 99.9% .9 against you. It's not something you want to bet your life on. So here is what I'm believing is happening is that the line of Seth is mixing with the evil line. And it says that the result of this evil line was that the, in verse um, 4, is there were giants in the land in those days and also after, and the sons of God came in into the daughters of men, and they bare children, and the same became mighty men of old, men of renown. In other words, great warriors. It was valiant people. And you think about this. Who is more likely to do whatever it takes to get what they want? Somebody who's righteous, trying to follow God's rules, or the person who has no problem stealing, killing, and lying to get what they want? Okay. Uh, it pretty much is an obvious statement. You know, those who are being raised in an evil way, they have no problem getting what they want because they are already down that path. And we know, we know that that's true. Who's going to steal your house? The person that's righteous and you trust or the person who is evil? Now, now I'm not saying the righteous person won't steal from you. Okay? Because we all under the right conditions might steal. But if I was going to choose who I was going to trust with my house, it's going to be the person who's basically a good person in their day-to-day -day walk rather than the person who's stealing from other people's houses and, and, and doing this damage. So we see the unrighteous growing and they're and they're getting evil but God's answer to this was his spirit will not always strive with man for he is flesh his days were going to be hundred and twenty years 
Now, I've had people tell me that that meant that men lived to be 120 years. No, in context, it's talking about the flood because that's the next thing. There's an event happening. God at this point is saying the flood's going to happen in 120 years. Okay, and you can do the math. I've already done it. When you look at the genealogies and everything, it works out that he's talking about the flood coming to destroy man. We, we, as I go on, this, the most important thing when you're looking and studying in the Bible, look at the context of what is being said around it. Most of the time when you're taught bad doctrine, it's because they lift a verse out of the scripture, out of the context, and they will tell you this is what the verse means. Classic example is the verse in Isaiah where it says, by his stripes you are healed. Okay, and almost everybody will teach you that that is talking about physical healing. And well, yes, God does heal us. But that verse isn't a proof of that. Because in context, it's all about spiritual diseases and spiritual death. And then they lift that verse out that's talking about being healed spiritually, which is what Jesus died for primarily, and say it's all about physical healing. Now, there are verses you can go to and say God wants to heal us, but that is not one you want to take <laughs> to prove healing because it's not for physical healing. So I just want to, we want to be very careful. Take the verses in context. When, you, when you're listening to a pastor, especially on the radio, or even me, if I tell you a verse, go back to that verse and go look and see. What's it say 10, 15, 20 verses before it? What's it say 10, 15, 20 verses after it? And say, has it accurately been used? Sometimes there's not a problem using it in a way, okay, as an, as an application. But if they're building their whole doctrine on that one verse, be very careful that you're not being misled. And it is, it's happened all the time. It happens with good pastors. I've seen it happen with good pastors. And it happens a lot with pastors who aren't doing their homework and researching their, their material. So just be careful. When you're studying, when you're reading the Bible and a, and a verse jumps off the page at you, make sure you're considering it in its context as well. Because otherwise you could get yourself in trouble, your own self, taking a verse completely out of context. And uh, there, there's an old joke about somebody flipping through the Bible and it, and it said, uh, you know, go and sin no more. And then you pull it up and, and it said, uh, you know, uh, uh, Judas went and hung himself. And they go, I don't like that verse. And they flipped it over. And then the next verse said, go and do likewise. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, you know, you want to be very careful because you can make the Bible say just about what you want it to say. Uh, if you're not very careful about taking the verses in context. So, and this is what I want to say about this is just be careful with it. Be careful for your own study. Be careful when you're listening to teachers. And make sure the teachers are applying this correctly as well because you want to keep yourself safe spiritually. And we need the verses in context. That does not mean that God can't talk to you just with a verse. I've had that and I've shared with you. How many times have I been reading over the years because I follow my own schedule and reading and all of a sudden I'll read a verse I've never noticed before because it just jumps off the page. And I've shared with you, I like to tease God. I'm going, God, when you put that verse in there, it wasn't there last year when I read here and I know it was. <laughs> Okay, I know it was, and I hope you know what I'm saying about that. When every once in a while a verse will just jump off the page and say, pay attention to me today. And sometimes that's just the verse you need to be listening to all day long as it applies to your, to your day's walk. And sometimes it's just the answer for that day. But it says that they were giants in the land. Now, we know that this giants in this word literally means valiant warriors. 
Well, we also know that there's giants. There's even going to be giants in the time of Deuteronomy and Exodus. And when they fight the Edomites and the Ammonites and, and all these other different ites that they're fighting, they get into Canaan. And many of the people of Canaan were what they called giants. David fought Goliath, who was only, who was only a mere nine foot six. <laughs> uh, and, and Goliath had four brothers. So we know that there were giants even to the time of David. And we don't know what causes that. We don't know fully why that might have been. I just will tell you it wasn't angels mixing with, with, uh, with females. <laughs> so don't, I don't buy that, and I definitely don't buy it after the flood uh, beyond. So there's just some gene that can cause that. But it says that they were old of old, and they were renowned, and they were mighty warriors. They were producing a group that wanted to, to do what they wanted. And we look again, if you remember Lemek from, uh, from Cain's line, what did he end up? He was the first one recorded as a polygamist, and he bragged that he had killed two men. He said it was in self-defense, but he bragged about it. And he said, if God gave grace to Cain, he'll give greater grace to me because I did it in defense. Yeah. This was the line of Cain that was evil enough to say, we just do it. And Lemek was the last one listed in the line of, of Cain, which probably puts him into the, this period that we're talking about right now. Murder is happening. Now, it said that we said that the world had, had begun to multiply. I don't know if you've ever thought about how many people were around at the time of the flood. <laughs> you know, I, I, I like numbers. You gotta, you, those of you who know me, I love numbers. <laughs> so I actually put this theory into effect into a spreadsheet. And I decided that the people didn't have a child until 100 years old, which was probably way too late. They only bred for 300 years, had their lifespan of 90, and had a death rate of about 10%. By the time of the flood, there was over 4 trillion people using those numbers as a baseline. Now, how many of you have ever thought that there were 4 trillion people on the earth before the flood? You know, most of us had never thought about that. But you think about this, these people are living 900 years old. <laughs> you can have a lot of kids in 900 years. <laughs> uh, and like I said, I only use 300 years of actual having kids. Now we don't know what the murder rate or the war rate or anything was during that period of time. That's why I tell you all the factors I put in there. But let's suffice it to say, at the time of the flood, there are a lot of people. A lot more than you probably ever imagined. Most people are thinking thousands, you know, maybe a hundred thousand. I would say there's at least a million, billion, up to several trillion people on the earth at that time. Okay. We say that because how many people do we have on our world right now? <laughs> Pretty close to the same number. And we're seeing the same results that we're going to get ready to talk about. That... The world is, is getting evil. And verse 5 says, And God saw the wickedness of man was great upon the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. Have you watched the news? <laughs> Have you heard what's being said, what's being pushed? Anything that God says is evil, man is trying to say is good and we should be doing. Anything that God says is good, man is saying is evil. 
We're told that in the last days will be like the days of Noah. Every imagination of people's hearts is evil. I know a few people who seems to have every imagination of their heart evil. Very few redemptive thoughts in their mind. How far do we have to go before we're in that point where every imagination of man's heart is evil? Probably not far. If TV, if TV and movies actually does what the entertainment world does, uh, says and reflect what this world is like, we're pretty much there. Now, I'm actually of the school of thought that they drive culture more than reflect culture. So it means we have a few more years until we get to where they're at. But either way, we're in bad shape. We need to be praying for revival. We need to pray for revival. Because I can tell you one thing, government is not going to be our savior. And I'm hearing lots of people go, okay, we got conservatives in, 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 in there in the government now. They're, everything's going to turn around. I doubt it highly. Conservatives are very inefficient when they get into, into the offices. They may slow it down a little bit. But our hope as Christians is not in our politicians. Our hope is not in, as some of my gun friends want to believe, into their stash of guns and bullets in their, in their, in, that they've stashed away. Our hope is in God. If there's going to be another revival, it's going to take Christians on our knees praying for revival. Now, I don't have a great hope because I look at the scriptures and I say, we seem to be right there where, where the end days were for, for the flood. But if we have a hope, it is in prayer and revival. And prayer and revival and then revival will start in us. Getting on fire for God. Getting in fire to read his word. Getting on fire to be with his people and bringing that out to others. We've talked many times about the two great awakenings in America, maybe three if you count the Jesus movement, and some do and some don't. They started with prayer. And they moved out from the churches into the towns that they were in. People in those towns got saved and, and radically saved. I'm not just saying they said a prayer and, and had a good feeling. They got saved and they got excited about God and told other people about God, who told other people about God, who told other people about God, and miraculous things happened. The greatest story I heard in the, about the Second Great Awakening is this town, everybody got saved, and this poor guy was trying to run his brothel and his bar, and he had to shut down, not because the government said you couldn't do it. Nobody came. <laughs> Okay, you want to talk about revival? That is revival. It is not bringing an evangelist into your church and having somebody give you a bunch of raw, raw, you know, let's win, it, win one for today. It's people changing, drastically changing to the point where they just can't help but share Jesus Christ. I've shared with you, when I got saved at 10 years old, I went out and I told all my friends about Jesus. And they go, well, how do we become saved? I go, I don't know, but come to church with me Sunday. Well, my poor church bus guy pulled up and there was 20 of us standing outside <laughs> waiting to get on the bus. I didn't have all the answers, but I knew where they could find the answers. Since then, I've learned the answers and I can help answer before. But, you know, we've shared with you the worst thing, everything he worries about witnessing is, what if they ask me a question that I don't know the answer to? 
And that guarantee you, I've heard it a hundred times, it seems like, when I've done any kind of evangelism classes or attended evangelism classes, the first question, well, what do I do when somebody asks me a question I don't know? I say, you praise God, and you say, I don't know the answer to that. Let me go find the answer. Can we meet again? You get to tell them twice, the gospel message twice. The greatest thing you worry about is actually the best thing that can happen to you. Because now you get to go find out the answer and come back and talk to him again. Don't get worried about everything that can go wrong. Open your mouth, share the gospel. You can even do what I did and say, well, I don't know the answers, but come to church with me. Because <laughs> somebody in my church will have the answers for you. <laughs> it's amazing that there's answers for anything they're going to throw at you. There's answers, and you just need to go out and, and ask. I've got several people who ask me all the time for answers so that they can witness to the people that they're talking to. It doesn't bother me because I like doing that. I like giving the answers on how to do that because that means people are witnessing. I love it when people are sharing the gospel. When you're reading the scriptures through during the week and God touches you with some very interesting thing that you learn, how many people are you sharing that with? You need to be sharing it with the body of Christ because they may get excited. You don't know how exciting it is to hear somebody when they're telling you what God showed them. I've been a Christian for over 40 years, and you know what? I love listening to new Christians who tell me what, they, what they've got to show them in the Bible or what God did for them that week. It's exciting. Why is it exciting? Well, bluntly, sometimes it's very interesting insight that God gives them <laughs> because they're listening directly to the Holy Spirit, and they can, there can be some really interesting things that they've learned. But other than that, to find people that are excited about God's word and about his, what he's doing is wonderful. And for those of us who've been a Christian for a long time, we need it. You know, have you ever been around a young grandchild or something and, and you just feel old, you don't want to do anything, but because you love your grandchildren, you try to do things with them and it makes you feel younger? Yeah. My, my grandmother on my mother's side, I think she went through about four child, childhoods. <laughs> She loved playing games, so each time the gener each generation that came up and she could replay all the, all the kid games, <laughs> you know, she loved it. You know, and she was just like a kid to the day she died because she stayed busy doing those things. We as Christians need to be around other new Christians. Do you remember when you first got saved, how exciting it was, how everything in the Bible was new, how much you wanted to tell everybody about Jesus? And then we start walking with God, and the longer we go, the less we start talking about it because it starts to be maybe old hat. It's just normal, and we forget about the freshness of it. We need to be around other Christians and young Christians and excited Christians to stay excited. Very important for us to be this way because God is saying here that the world is going to tear us down. Every imagination of the world leads to evil. Have you ever been around somebody, everybody's happy and this one person shows up and they're so negative that they sap all the energy out of the, out of the, out of the room? Uh, I've had employees like that in the past that everybody's having a good day and this employee is not happy unless everybody is miserable. And does everything they can, it seems like, to make sure everybody's miserable. And unfortunately, negative works a lot faster than positive. Why? Because our flesh feeds on that negativity. Negativity and sin is part of who we really are at the core of our flesh. 
Now, we may be walking spiritually and desiring to follow God spiritually, but the negative is still there, trying to fight. And we, st- we suffer. As Christians, we still suffer with this all the time. And I tell people, if anybody wants to tell me that they're not sinning, I know they're lying right then. Now, they may not be sinning all the time, like this one says, every imagination of their heart. But I can guarantee you, you sin every day. Possibly every hour. May or may not be every minute, but, <laughs> but most of us have trouble with sin. Now, the more of God that's in us, the more of him that is following us, the less likely we are to have major issues with the sin. But I know that I can't go a whole day without sinning, whether in thought or action. And we've got to remember that God measures thoughts as sin as well. And most of mine nowadays are thought prob- problems, not, not act- acting out problems. And for many of you in this room, I know that's probably the same thing. But I also know many, many that have, had this, have the same problem that a lot of us do. Our tongue keeps getting us in trouble. <laughs> yeah. We speak without thinking. We gossip without thinking. We cut people up without thinking. We destroy people's lives without thinking. And that's exactly what James tells us is the tongue is a fire set on by hell. We need to be very careful. We need to have God in control of our tongue. We need to have him in control of our brain and our mind. And really, when you around somebody who, especially a Christian who's trying to be negative, try to stop them. Say, I don't need to hear this. If they're trying to gossip with you, I have a good answer for gossip. You know, let's go talk to that person. If we're standing in front of him, you can tell me whatever you want to say about them. Uh, and over the years, I've had exactly zero people take me up on the offer. <laughs> they just don't want to talk in front of the person they want to talk about. Which tells me that it was not worth hearing in the first place. But we want to be able to stand as the light in this world. A light against all the darkness. And we're headed toward very evil times. And we've talked about this over and over again. If we're not at the end days, we're awfully close And I really don't believe that we have 100 or 200 years left. I'm not even sure that we have decades left when I look at the scriptures. Now, in one sense, I'd love to be wrong. And in another sense, I'd really want him him here tomorrow so I can just go to heaven and be done with all of this. But there's still a lot of people I know that I want to see saved. I've got family members who aren't saved yet. They've heard the gospel. They know what the gospel is. But I've got family members I want to see saved before God comes. But if they don't, it, it, it was their decision. And then it says, It repented God that he made, made man and he grieved over it. Every time we read these types of verses, it's kind of interesting because we know that God knows the beginning from the end. We know that God knew, even before he created man, that man was going to sin. We know that he knew that men's every imagination was going to be toward evil, even before he created them. And that Jesus had already agreed to be the redemptive lamb. We know that his, the blood of the lamb was shed for Adam and Eve to get clothed with the skin, which was a picture of Jesus' death shown to them from the very beginning. And it says it repented God. But you know, one thing we note is anytime we read this statement that it repented God of something, in the next verse, grace and mercy is shown. Okay? Each time you read that, it repented God that he did that and there'd be a form of grace and mercy being shown. In this case, 
Noah. But Noah. And I've shared with you, I love that little word, but. Sometimes. Because it means that something is changing in the context of what you're reading. Before this, it's all things are going bad, things are going bad, things are going good. But Noah. <laughs> and what about Noah? Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace. Grace, is, and we've talked many times, grace is such a wonderful thing. What do we do to deserve grace? Nothing. If we did anything to deserve it, it wouldn't be grace anymore. It would be your wages. The only wage that we receive from God is death because of sin. But Noah found grace. Now Noah is, is identified as a righteous man and all of this, but Noah was still a sinner. Noah deserved to be punished like the rest of them, but at least he obviously was offering sacrifices and listening to God. He found grace. It's amazing when we look at this, all the different people that found grace. Abraham, when he was called Abram, was called by God and God counted it as righteousness. Now you think that Abram was any better than all the rest of the people that lived in that entire city of Ur of the Chaldees? Probably not. Because Eber was still alive when Abraham was born. And Eber is going to be two generations out from the flood. And Eber is the last of the long, long-lived people, and he lives all the way to the birth of Jacob. Okay? And he's real close to the flood. Now, is Abraham much greater than Eber? I don't know. Is Abraham greater than some of the other people? No, God chose him by grace. When you were walking along in your sin, in your flesh, and all of a sudden God hit you with grace and said, I want you to be my child, <laughs> were you better than everybody else that you know? Now, some people might have been a little better than other people, but I also know there's lots of people who were not close to being better <laughs> than the people they hung out with. And God brings grace. The great interesting thing about grace, all of us want grace. All of us want grace. We all want to get what we don't deserve. How, much of us want to, how many of us want to extend grace to others? That's a little harder, isn't it? When somebody is really irritating you and, and making you mad and angry, and maybe even doing it on purpose, <laughs> is grace what you want to give them? Yeah. No, it's not. And if somebody tells you to give them grace, what is the very first words that you usually hear? They don't deserve it. <laughs> well, of course they don't deserve it. It wouldn't be grace if they deserved it. We want to keep this in mind. God gave Noah grace. And Noah's going to answer the call, and we'll talk about that next week. But Noah's going to answer the call because he found grace. Now, why God gives grace? I don't know. Ask him. <laughs> you know, does he see something in us that we don't see? Does he, does he just desire to give grace to those he'll give grace? Does he, you know, he knows the beginning from the end, so who knows why he does what he does? But God deals with us by grace. People will say, why do the unrighteous get reward, seem, seemingly get rewarded so well? God's grace. 
God's grace that he doesn't give them what they deserve from the moment they, they deserve it. And isn't it great that God gives grace to all? Because if he gave us what we deserved, the, the exact moment we sinned, we'd be struck dead because that's what we deserve. Most of us wouldn't make it past about two years old. <laughs> I figure two years older when my kids definitely knew when they were doing wrong. <laughs> and I figure I probably wasn't that different from my kids. <laughs> so most of us probably wouldn't make it past two, maybe even one and a half, definitely not past three, <laughs> before we know that we've done wrong, if we got what, God, what we deserve. God gives grace. And for many of the unrighteous, he keeps giving them grace, and he keeps giving them grace. Why? Because at some point he wants them to accept Christ. Gives them every opportunity to. And we need to be very careful. We've shared this many times on the, on the study times. How often do we look at somebody who has wealth and possessions and can, can buy whatever they want, do whatever they want, and we go, boy, they got it all together. And then we read the next day they've committed suicide. Or they're in a drug rehab program. Or an alcoholic program. They're not happy. They don't know God. And we look at them and think, well, they got it all together. Well, if we as Christians had it, we might be doing things a little different because we've got God. But we need to be careful that we don't look at others and say, I need to be like them. You know, what's going on behind their private life? You may not want to be them. So we want to be very careful when we look at others. We want to be able to look at ourselves and say, God, what is it you want me to do? And have our expectation be what God wants us to do. Watched a movie, this uh, Christian movie, uh, two days ago, and it was kind of interesting because this mother was having a hard time being a mother and because she was trying to be the perfect mother, which there's no such thing as. And at the end of the movie, she came to the conclusion of she needed to just be the mother God asked her to be. Because all of a sudden people told her that she was the perfect mother, and she's like, uh, well, no, I've got all these problems. And she saw the failings in the mother she thought was perfect. We need to be careful that we're not trying to be perfect. We're trying to do what God has asked us to do and do it to the best that we can. Because he is not looking for us to be perfect because he knows that we cannot be perfect. That's why he gives us grace. That's why he clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. The more he indwells us, the more perfect we will become because he changes us. But we will never be perfect in this, war, in this walk, in this world. Now, as I've said before, hopefully you look back on your life and you say, I am becoming more perfect with each day, with each week, with each year. And you look at your life and say, wow, I used to do this two years ago and I haven't even thought about doing this. And you go, God is changing you. How does he change you? From the inside. The Holy Spirit indwells us. He changes who we are from the inside. We are sinners deserving of punishment, and Christ died for us so that we can become Christians and saves us, indwells us, and changes us. <laughs> and the good news is when we pass away or are, or are raptured, we will be made perfect. And we won't have a sin nature. And we will remain perfect for all of eternity. That's what we have to look forward to. Struggles and hassles on this world, learning, temptations, tests. God says, I'm teaching you this, and then he's going to give you tests. You know, our school system is built on teaching and testing. Show me what you know. You know they got it from God. God does the same thing. He teaches us, and then he tests us. And when we fail, he reteaches us. 
and retests us on the same topic <laughs> until we pass. Then we pass and he gives us another teaching and then he gives us more tests. Hate to disappoint you, but you're going to face tests until you die. <laughs> and on the other side of that, the tests keep getting harder, <laughs> just as they do in school. When you leave kindergarten, you go to first grade, you get a first grade test, not a kindergarten test. You get into high school, you get a high school test, not an elementary school or a kindergarten test. You go to college, and they're not giving you a kindergarten test. God does the same thing in our lives. The more we understand, the more we have been trained, the bigger the test will be. We're going to end here and get ready for uh, communion. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, we ask that you help us to learn your word. Prepare us for those tests that you will guide us through and help us through. Lord, if there is anybody who doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, we ask that you get hold of their heart. Convince them that they are a sinner and that, and that they need to repent from their sin and turn to you that, and accept your sacrifice to be a Christian and come to you. And if there's anybody that has done that, that they will just contact us and let us know that that has happened. And Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we get ready for communion in your son's name. Amen.